entering the Freedom Hut. They've pushed impeachment to the full house. It is, in fact, not the least bit bipartisan. This is straight up party line Democrat attack. We'll talk about that. Plus, an election in the UK that slaps down the socialist leftist candidate. We've got that. Plus, some Freestyle Friday because we're rocking and rolling. Coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Without objection, the committee is adjourned. There it is. Day of history. First time in 21 years and for only the third time in American history. Articles of impeachment will move to the House of Representatives. You can expect a long week next week with a likely vote in the full House at the end of next week or at some point before Christmas. There you have it. Welcome to the Bucks Action Show, everybody. Friday show is upon us. Wow, this week really did fly by. It feels like it moved very, very quickly. So now, as we look at what's going on here with impeachment, what's going on with the situation playing out in the House of Representatives, we know exactly what's going to happen. We know that there will, in fact, be the impeachment of the president of the United States. I mean, there's no way that they're not going to do this. It's just not feasible that there will be some other alternative for them. And so now we look at, okay, what does, what does that really mean? Um, how do we get to this point? I've had a bit of a, a revelation the last few days. And the revelation is that the situation we are seeing unfolding, as much as it feels like an abuse, because it is, is also entirely predictable. You have a president of the United States who came into office specifically as a challenge to unfit elites, people who are part of the ruling class, the establishment class that makes the decisions, that derives much of the benefit from the system themselves. And those people don't like that there is now a challenge to their power and their authority. The swamp fights back. I've said it before. The president said he would drain the swamp. And one thing that has been Particularly illuminating about all of this is that the president has also exposed who they really are. We see who these people are now. They're wrong on a lot of things. I mean, here you have the president today announcing the first phase of a trade uh, of a, well, a, a deal to limit at least the trade war. So there's some progress being made on that. You have the president taking up U.S. interests against China and doing so despite the fact that all the so-called experts were claiming that the president should never, ever engage in any kind of tit-for-tat back and forth with China over trade. They said that the economy would be plummeting. We'd be in a recession because of Trump, because he doesn't know what he's doing. He's a reality TV star. He has a record of business failures, as well as some business successes, They would point to all this and say he's going to be a terrible president of the United States. And then we turn around and we say, well, hold on a second. By no objective understanding of this country right now, could you say that he has been a bad president? So, so much of this anger at him is, in fact, a a response 
to the success that he has had. It's a response from people who thought that they knew better. And now that they have to be faced with the reality they didn't know any better. They're very upset about it and they don't want to believe it. They'd rather deny it and suggest the president is a traitor, a Russian stooge, emoluments clause, Stormy Daniels payoffs, whatever it is. There's always some new way to try to negate what Trump has shown all of us. And this also then brings me to how no matter what occurs in the 2020 election, Trumpism is not going away. Uh, This is a new Republican Party. This is a new conservative movement. And they have seen that the other side doesn't fight fair, doesn't care what the rules are. And so trying to approach them all the time with with a soft touch, find common ground. That's not a good idea. It doesn't work. They just take that extended hand and then slap you with it. No interest in fairness or fair play or good faith. So the swamp is doing exactly what we should expect it to do with this impeachment proceeding exactly what we would think uh, would happen here and then that brings me to uh, the reasons that they are are giving for this which is just amazing Uh, the reasons they have for why this president needs to be impeached the first purely partisan impeachment in the history of the country you have for example the question about what happened to the crimes? We were told that there were crimes committed, right? They just that the House Judiciary just voted on a strictly party line vote to send this to the full House. There'll probably be a vote what Wednesday of next week. The President of the United States is going to be impeached, and they've had to back. It was a twenty-three to seventeen vote, and they're going back now on all of the claims they made. The President had broken the law. We had been told the president had broken the law. We had been told that there were all these terrible and egregious crimes that he had committed. Whatever happened to any of that? Well, interestingly enough, Nancy Pelosi herself was asked about this. And here's what she said. Play clip one, please. I myself am not a lawyer. Sometimes I act like one. Not as often as I act as a doctor. I practice medicine on the side without benefit of diploma, too. Uh, This is a decision that was recommended by our working together uh, with our committee chairs, our attorneys and the rest. The question was, you yourself accused Trump of bribery. Why did you not decide to make bribery one of the articles of impeachment? That is what Nancy Pelosi was asked. And what you got back was that word salad. What you got back was that bizarre little mini rant about how this was a consultation among. It was almost like the Elizabeth Warren policy advisor. Yeah, this is all about making sure that we don't revert to the norm and that we circle back and make sure that we have a foreign policy that's reflective of the new consensus of the just just babble. Pelosi saying it was recommended by working together with our committee chairs. That's a total non-answer. You said the president committed bribery, Nancy Pelosi. Your Democrat colleagues also said the president committed bribery. Where was that bribery? Where's the charge related to it? That's very specific. And by the way, that is, in fact, a crime. What about the other crimes that they said were committed here? What about the campaign finance charge they tried to trot out initially? Where did that where did that go? 
I'm just wondering. I'm just curious. Ah, that's right. You see, they're giving themselves cover in this process because criminal charges, people can look at and understand whether or not the elements of the crime are met. What they are doing is creating with this impeachment sham, hoax, joke, farce. Maybe we should create an acronym for it. What they're doing with this is the facade of a legal process, of a process that is based in rules and reason and fairness and process, period. And then they transition it into pure whim. Whatever the people that have the votes think is what's going to happen. It just flatly does not matter whether or not a crime was committed here because it's just a judgment call. Abuse of power, corruption of Congress. And as I said, I mean, or obstruction of Congress, rather, although we do have a corrupt Congress. I think that much is quite clear. Obstruction of Congress is the most laughable of the two. The more laughable one, because there's no way that you could justify somebody using their recourse to the courts for a process of government that has the force of law behind it and say that that's obstruction. That's just doing what you're supposed to do. But they don't care. They want an asterisk on this presidency. They want to make sure that people know that President Trump was impeached. And here's what I'm going to tell you, folks. He will be impeached and he will be reelected. That doesn't mean that we can't expect the nastiest fight we've ever seen in American politics over the next now 11 months. It'll be the it'll be the most bare knuckle, no holds barred, all out battle for political power you've seen in your lifetime in this country. I don't think anything else is going to come close. I do think Trump will come out on the other end victorious. But keep in mind, that doesn't really change. That just continues the status quo. A status quo where the establishment is in a state of total political warfare against this president. Nothing will really change after he wins in that regard. The only thing that I think might change a bit, they will abuse the process in any number of ways they can. If they maintain the uh, majority in the House of Representatives, my understanding is there's nothing to prevent them from impeaching Trump again. Just keep doing it. This is a Linskyite approach To the House of Representatives. This is abuse, the seams, the fractures, the fissures in a process in order to shut something down and get your way. It's the bullying of the community organizer and the union thug. That's what we see going on here. Right. Oh, we're not going to necessarily break the rules. We're just going to make sure that instead of anybody acting like an adult in this process, we will pretend that there's no understanding of good faith that can be applied to any of the rules. Now, I mentioned this to you before. What's an Alinskyite tactic? Well, instead of just uh, using the, let's say, the uh, cafeteria and restrooms in an establishment, you just send people in to sit at all the tables and and take up all the bathroom stalls and just sit there for hours and hours and hours, shut the place down. Is that technically illegal? Well, if they're trespassing, but if it, what if it's a government facility? Then what happens, right? I mean, you, you look at the way that they play these games, the things that they do, and you understand that they are spoiled children who are not getting their way. And all this talk about the Constitution and all this discussion of how they just want President Trump to finally pay for his still indescribable, undescribable, I should say, 
crimes. It's all it's all a farce. It's all preposterous. I mean, whatever happened to bribery, they couldn't make bribery stick. You've seen this also with the Mueller probe. Why do they have the 10 counts of obstruction, but not one count? Why not pick your best one and just say, here, we've got him on obstruction. That's what a real law enforcement proceeding would do. Pick your best provable charge. Go with it. No, they laid out 10 so that people, so that idiot Democrat talking heads could go on TV and say, the 10 counts of obstruction and make it sound so much more ominous than it is to make it sound like there's so much more behind it. If they'd focused in on one, you know what would happen? People would pay attention to that one. They would talk about any specific one. And then when it fell apart, it would be, well, if that one wasn't obstruction, clearly none of the rest of them are. It's all just games, folks. It's all propaganda. It's all lies, misdirection. These people can't make an honest case because the American people, in a majority sense, when we actually look at the way the votes are going to go, will not buy their case in 2020. They're not going to win. They're not going to win, and they know that, which is why they are freaking out right now. They need to change something. They need to disrupt the system that they proclaim that they're actually trying to save in this whole process. So here we are, the first completely one-party impeachment you've ever seen, and the Democrats think that this is going to help them in some way. I don't think that they're master strategists. I don't think that they really understand where all of this is going. It's my belief that, by and large, the Democrats are just desperate angry and flailing and this is the response that you can expect when somebody's in that situation i've been saying for how long that they're going to impeach this president i told you i had 99 or 100 percent certainty months ago it was obvious you knew it too you've been writing into me you understand what the dynamics are here you can't run against trump on his record you certainly can't run on the inspiring qualities of any of these democrat candidates And what would it mean to the people that say that Trump had to cheat the first time around, that Trump is unfit to be president, terrible, he doesn't read books, he's a mean, mean, bad man, orange man, bad, all of this, and then he wins four more years? What does that say about those who think that they're smart because of how much they hate Trump? What does it say about their judgment? They can't face that reality. They can't face that day. They'd much rather do anything that they can and have their elected representatives do anything that they can. And the media establishment and the elites within the federal government, within the academy, Hollywood, Wall Street, wherever they can, get all the powerful libs together to do everything that they can to make sure that the ruling class doesn't get what it deserves from Trump, which is more of what we've seen, more calling them out, Yes, more abuse. They deserve to be abused verbally by the president of the United States. They have misled us. They are not what they pretend to be. The meritocracy that so many in the media, in the academy and elsewhere, in corporate America now, the meritocracy they pretend exists, they've actually bastardized at every opportunity, leverage it for their own purposes. All about power dynamics, not about excellence, not about honor, not about integrity. This is the America that the liberal elites want you to be living in. And this is the America that President Trump has exposed. Finally, now we come to a point where we say, I don't think I'll let you continue with that, libs. I think it's time for something else. And that's why the impeachment is so important to them. The psychological impulse that they can finally act on, that Trump just, it cannot be. They are shrieking out. This is the collective shriek of the Democratic Party. 
Trump cannot be president for four more years. But the great thing is, my friends, and I want you to remember this going into this weekend, he can be, and I strongly believe he will be. And my gosh, that's going to be an interesting day in this country. My colleague from Georgia talks about how Democrats uh, are trying to make President Zelensky look weak. Well, I tell you, that brings to mind the picture of President Trump and President Zelensky meeting in New York in September uh, at the U.N. And a big chair for President Trump, little chair for President Zelensky, big six foot four President Trump, five foot eleven. Trump is too tall, you see. Another reason to impeach, impeach Trump. His salt shaker at the table this week at the White House was bigger than the people around him. His pepper shaker as well. Did you see that? The media actually reported on that. He gets two scoops of ice cream when everyone else gets one. Impeach! (laughs) You can't, you really can't be too silly with this stuff because it's silly beyond words. There's just no sense behind any of this anymore. Everything about Trump uh, triggers lips. Everything about everything about him. The way he talks, the way he looks, the way he sounds, the way he tweets. It's all just one big trigger situation. He's just driving them into these uh, fits of rage all the time with even the slightest, even the slightest gesture. Most offhanded comment. His chill Greta chill yesterday got so many libs upset. Oh, my gosh. I thought he was actually giving young Greta good advice. Just relax. Go see a movie. It's all going to be okay. That really is the way we should start talking to climate change alarmists, by the way, because telling them to just relax and enjoy their lives will drive them insane. (laughs) They they don't want to hear that. They want to be told it's all going to end because of conservatives and the Koch brothers and fossil fuels. Like total maniacs. The articles are what they are. They're very powerful. They're very strong. And they are a continuation of a pattern of misbehavior on the part of the president. People are realizing when they see what that was, they think, the public thinks, that they should be determining who the president of the United States is, not some foreign power. They think that no one is above the law. We think, and say do they, that the president should be held accountable. The articles are what they are. They're powerful. They're very strong. (laughs) Nancy Pelosi. Shameless. Utterly shameless politician. Nothing about the way that she comports herself, nothing about the way that she has approached any of this impeachment situation, really anything about the Trump presidency, has been done with decency and honor and integrity. Instead, it's just smears, left-wing nonsense, talking points. She says things that she knows to be untrue, and she says them with a a particular zeal, the more obviously untrue they are, the more clear it is that whatever she's telling us is not the case, the more that she has this look in her eyes like, oh, this is the most important thing I've ever said. 
I just want the American people to understand how serious this is, but how we don't want to do this. We don't want to impeach this president. I mean, I'm sure that she was going home and drinking some Dom, Dom Perignon the moment that she knew that they were going to get this impeachment thing through. I, I, you know, people say that she believes that it's probably a bad idea, that she understands that the long-term electoral consequences are bad. I don't know. Democrats probably figure that with their media allies, with their ability to change the narrative at any point in time, they can just pretend that it never, just like with the Mueller probe, just pretend it never happened. If it's working, great. The media will remind everybody every day of it. All across the country, newsrooms, TV channels, tell everybody if it's working. Oh, the impeached president? They have low information voters out there who will be told he was impeached, so clearly he must be bad. In fact, that was one of the more unsettling narratives you heard from people defending the FBI's conduct in the FISA abuse debacle was, well, if the FBI is doing it, it, they must have had good reason. No, that is not how free people who are free thinkers operate in a free society. We don't sit around and say, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Just because the government has some people with power that are taking a certain action, they must be doing so with good reason. Nobody really believes that. But with the FBI, the Democrats pretend to believe it because it is better for them right now politically. It is more useful to them politically than it would otherwise be. So you have more about that. Doug Collins gets this. He's laying it down. Play clip seven, please. My man Doug laying it down. They do not care about rules. They have one thing, their hatred of Donald Trump. And this showed it tonight because they want to shine in these cameras, get prettied up, and then vote and make it all happen. This was the most, I'm just beyond words at this point. But it shows their lack of integrity in this process and the lack of case that they have. For them to actually come out here to defend this is the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, they they were going to have the vote last night, but instead they decided to wait until this morning and then they had this just very quick vote situation that they could televise so i guess jerry nadler feels like he got his moment in the sun and i've got to tell you um the impeachment frenzy the democrats have shown us is to anybody who is honest about their desire to protect the country who wants the best for the country, if you normalize, to borrow a word from the libs, exactly what's going on here, an entirely partisan impeachment process, if you allow that to become normal, then this is what we will face in the future again. The same way the Democrats didn't believe the, 20, uh, the 2000 election was legitimate because Al Gore lost to George W. Bush. They didn't believe the 2016 election was legitimate. And now the next time around, they're going to say, we don't think the the election after that that they lose is legitimate. They've created this. They've constructed this. It's a narrative, of course, that allows them to evade any feelings of ideological inadequacy. Maybe they're mistaken on something. Maybe they've made an error somewhere along the way. Time to change course. Time to think about another approach. Nope. Republicans cheat. That's what they say. I also have noticed that even we'll get into a little bit of the British elections here coming up. But Republicans, for example, uh, or rather, sorry, the British election, for example, is a situation where there's also people saying 
that there may have been an outside interference. This now becomes somewhat similar to the way the left approaches voter suppression. Anytime the left loses an election somewhere, one of their go-tos is to say, and the most notable example in the last couple of years is Stacey Abrams in Georgia for the gubernatorial election. They will say there was voter suppression, you see. It was a racist conspiracy that delivered victory to the Republican over the Democrat. And then when you turn around and actually look at the numbers and look at what happened, that is not the case. But how do you how do you change minds on that? How do you tell people, hold on a second? You have no proof of this. Well, it doesn't matter because liberals want to believe it. They want to believe that there was voter suppression. And you can never make it beyond any doubt that there wasn't any voter suppression, right? They just can say it. And to be fair, on the right, sometimes you hear this about voter fraud, although voter fraud is, in fact, something that is proven in court and people go to prison for, and it does happen. It's a question of on what scale does it happen. But foreign interference is now the rallying cry of the sore loser, the whiner, the child who will not accept that he or she did not get their way in an election contest. And that should be really dispiriting to everybody because this is not going to go away. This is now... As I said, it is normalized. This should be the expectation. And not just for our elections, too. You'll see this now repeated in other places. Will this have the intended effect for Democrats? No one knows right now. I mean, I don't think it will. I think that this is going to be viewed historically. This will be viewed as a blunder. Think about this. Take that step back that I said. Trump challenges the establishment, says he wants to drain the swamp outside of the political norms for the ruling class in this country, goes after the press in a way nobody else has before, rightly, of course, as I think, but does all of these things. And yes, now the establishment is lashing out at him, is trying to strike back with everything that he, at that they have. It's not surprising at all. It's really what we should expect, and it's not going to change anytime soon either. Will it work? Hi, I'm Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party. My pronouns are he, him. Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, his pronouns that he announced apparently did not do enough to help him win the election. The UK had one, and people are looking at this for not just what it says about over there, but what the parallels are to populism and the rise of, well, anti-leftist, anti-socialist feeling, at least, in this country as well. Let's get to our friend Raheem Kassam, everybody. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. He is also co-host of the War Room podcast on impeachment. And it's a Friday, so he's agreed to hang out with us a little bit. Mr. Raheem, good to see you again. Hey, great to, great to be back with you. And uh, did you just put on an English accent? No, oh, no that would never happen on the show. <laughs> never. <laughs> and that, of course not, Raheem. That would be foolish. So tell me, my friend, um, the election that happened, we have the results. Boris Johnson beats Jeremy Corbyn for prime minister. Just give us first your, your top line on what happened here. Well, I, I hate to be a bit of a downer on it, but we're sort of seeming in a celebratory manner about a, a, a moderate conservative being able to be a hardline Marxist friend of Hamas and Hezbollah, somebody who's made excuses over the last couple of decades for Irish Republican Army terrorists. I should have thought, and indeed I did predict, that Boris Johnson would win by about 80 seats. I think we're at 76 at the moment with one yet to declare. So I wasn't far off. 
um, as the polls narrowed in the last couple of weeks, I tempered my expectations a little bit um, so to, to 30 or 50, so 32.50 rather. So he outshone my expectations on the day. Um, but it just goes to show uh, that I think the American takeaway from this should be the Democrats in the U.S. are in a lot of trouble because following this hardline leftism doesn't seem to get anyone anywhere in the Western world. You're seeing it take place all across the Western world, this rejection of the mantra of vote for us and we'll give you free stuff. And Boris Johnson's prime minister is a result of it. Jeremy Corbyn was promising what for the voters in the U.K.? Oh, free everything. You know, we started with uh, nationalized broadband for a start. That's, you know, free broadband provided by the government, which would have been an absolute disaster, no doubt. Um, uh, abortions up till the date of delivery. You had everything from the, from the hard leftist uh, playbook on this. And then, of course, he goes on television and announces his pronouns, as you just played the clip of. Um, Corbyn's big sell uh, because this was the Brexit election, his big sell was, I'm not going to weigh in either way on Brexit. I will put it back to the people, let the people decide again, and then we'll decide on it afterwards. And honestly, people are just sick to the teeth of having to deal with Brexit. They have other things going on in their lives. So Boris Johnson's promise, his promise was, look, vote for me. We'll get it done by January 31st, and then we can go back to being a normal functioning country again. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the big reasons he won out. Now, people sometimes compare Johnson to Trump, but the more I've looked at Johnson, at Boris Johnson's policy positions, I mean, he he seems less like the leader of a of a new political movement or a a a pure counter left political movement. It seems to me more like he's just opportunistic. Oh, big time. I mean, if there's one thing that's often said about Boris is that he just he blows with the wind um, and he blew with the wind this time. Remember, he wasn't even a firm Brexiteer three years ago. We had to really twist his arm to back the Brexit cause. He did it, seeing his path to Downing Street, to number 10 Downing Street, to the prime minister's office as a result of that. So he jumped on board. And honestly, it's more like Jeff Flake being in charge of the Republican Party than it is Donald Trump being in charge of the Republican Party. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson is pro-amnesty. He's pro-open borders. He's pretty center-left. He's probably to the left of Hillary Clinton in reality. Um, and that's why I'm not in a, in, a, in a celebratory mood over this. The only thing to celebrate, I think, is we've, we've once again seen the rejection of hardline socialism. But as far as this Brexit deal is concerned, it's not actually a very good deal. It keeps Britain part of a number of European Union institutions. It establishes a, a, a hard border, a trade border with Northern Ireland, which is, of course, in the United Kingdom. So there should be no trade border there. Um, and it also means that we have to pay a whopping £60 billion, which is at the moment, I think, about $80, $85 billion to the European Union um, for, the, for the pleasure of leaving. So it's not actually a very good deal that we'll see on January 31st. But hey, if you're an optimist about these things, you'll say it's a start. Yeah, I guess we should be happy that the British version of Nicolas Maduro is not in charge of our <laughs> one of our two or three most important allies in the world in this country. So that's I, I guess that's a good thing. But I also have this feeling, Raheem, of how the heck could somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, you know, say what you will about the Democratic Party. And I do say regularly that I think they've basically gone insane. At least at this point, it's not clear that Sanders or Warren or an AOC type figure is going to win the primary or be the true leader of that party. 
Corbyn is right along that model, and he got shellacked in this election, but he still was the leader of the Labor Party. That seems that seems yeah. like that's ominous for the future. Yeah, he, he indeed. And, and as the younger voters, they had this group in the UK called Momentum, which was really about 40,000 members across the country and it formed the backbone of Jeremy Corbyn's activist group. But he wasn't a leader of Momentum. He really allowed Momentum to lead him. So young millennials, shy of work, um, shy of anything, really, um, didn't care about national dignity, national sovereignty, uh, didn't really want to uh, be a part of civil society, just wanted handouts. They were the ones that led Jeremy Corbyn into, into, the, government, uh, sorry, into the office of the opposition, the official opposition. And, you know, you'll see that with the Democrat Party as well until they actually get a shellacking for allowing the hard left to take over, too. They have to live it to learn it. And uh, this impeachment thing has been uh, the left, the hard left of the Democrat Party, dragging them uh, towards more uh, socialistic policies and further and further away, as we've seen quite evidently from the U.S. Constitution. So, you know, let's 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 let Nancy Pelosi find that out the hard way. What is really the basis of this? Uh, this populism that is on the rise in the UK specifically. People have talked about when Trump won in 2016, and obviously you were very close to an advisor to Nigel Farage. What, what is populism in the UK context? You know, I think, that, I think the practical implication is that people want control over their lives again. They don't want decisions made in a foreign country like we had with Brussels being the heart of the European Union in, in Belgium as a foreign country. And philosophically, it's about dignity. You can't have dignity as a citizen or a voter if you're allowing government to tell you what to do rather than you telling government what to do. And, and so it's those two things that I think led us down the path to Brexit and have led us to this uh, rejection across the Western world, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the Western world of hard leftism, centralized control, multilateralism, uh, multinational organizations like the EU, the United Nations, all of them leeching power away from what we have known traditionally as localism um, and, a, and a broader localism, obviously, we know is either nationalism or nationism. So I think you think you've got two strands there, the practical and the philosophical. Uh, and I think most people, I mean, you know, you only have to look as far as the, the Midlands and the north of England, traditional labor heartlands, i.e. traditional left-leaning voters. And even they, en masse, rejected a, a pull to the left yesterday. Let's come back with Raheem in a second, guys, to talk about impeachment and politics in this country. Look, in 2016, the Democrats had the insurance policy. Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, that was their deal in 2016. The FBI, 2020, it's impeachment. 2020, they're going to use impeachment. Insurance policy didn't work in 2016. Impeachment's not going to work in 2020 because the American people appreciate what this president is getting done on their behalf. Jim Jordan doesn't think impeachment's going to work in 2020. What does Raheem Kassam think, our friend and uh, sometime host here on the show and co-host of the War Room podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes? It is Raheem. It is Steve Bannon and Jason Miller. Raheem, where are you guys? I mean, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to you even offline about what you think about this past week. We just had the two articles of impeachment get voted by judiciary to go to the full House vote next week. How is this working out so far for Dems and where is this going as far as you and your two colleagues that follow this every day? You guys see it. 
Well, look, I mean, they've, they've, the Democrats have pressed the accelerator pedal on impeachment in the last week or so. And the rationale, the reason for that um, is that as the details come out, especially the details contained in the Inspector General's report, the details we're going to get from Bull Durham's report, the details as they came out in the public hearings, the testimonies on Capitol Hill, the details that came out from quizzing those nutty professors, those constitutional lawyers that went up there, and the details that will continue to come out uh, about what exactly President Trump did, what exactly uh, government policy was, and, and what he is alleged to have done that he didn't actually do, people are learning these things. They're learning them from the television, they're learning them from podcasts, they're learning them from shows like yours, and, and what they're seeing is actually the president has control over foreign policy. He is allowed to do that. What we learned this last week is that the Office of Management and Budget, which is a critical part of the White House infrastructure, they had already, a month prior to the Trump-Zelensky phone call, already put major question marks over this aid. So it was nothing to do with what the Democrats call a domestic political errand and everything to do with America first foreign policy. Now, the political establishment may not like America first foreign policy, and that's fine. They can urge in all their ways possible that the uh, electorate don't vote for President Trump again in 2020. That is their right to do. But what is not their right to do is to try and remove a sitting president from office because they have uh, a, a, you know, a sort of a different, a distinct idea of what the United States' role is on the world stage. The people decide that. And the people decided that in 2016. Trump wasn't shy about going around the country and indeed going around the world telling everyone, look, we are going to reset our foreign policy. We're going to change the way we do things on the national stage. We're going to put America first at the heart of every decision we make. And you'll see, you, you saw that with Ukraine. You saw his questioning of exactly what took place in 2013 under the Obama administration, just after Clinton stopped being Secretary of State, when Joe Biden's son was on the board of Burisma. What exactly took place there? And he wanted to know before he handed over another $400 million of hard-earned U.S. taxpayer cash to a corrupt country like Ukraine, the third most corrupt country in the Western world, according to Ernst & Young, the most corrupt country in Europe, according to The Guardian, the left-wing newspaper. And so it's perfectly within his right to do so. And the polling suggests that actually nothing has changed since they started this impeachment process. And if anything has changed, it's actually that the voters are less likely to support impeachment, especially in the battleground states. You had a new Marquette poll from Wisconsin out today, shows people opposed uh, in majority to um, to impeachment, and the same thing is taking place in Philadelphia, in Ohio, sorry, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Florida. All of these states that the Democrats should be worried about, they're actually losing traction now thanks to this impeachment process. What do you think then was the the rationale? I mean, behind closed doors, Pelosi and Schiff and. And all the rest of them, Nadler, you know, they, they've been talking. Nancy said, you know, why wasn't bribery one of the actual charges, one of the articles of impeachment, I should say, after you charged or accused the president of doing that? And she just just babbled. I mean, she had no, no answer for whatsoever. But she did say, well, we've been consulting. Yeah, we know they've all been consulting with each other a lot. Do you think that they believed, because at least the initial story was that Pelosi was, for pure political reasons, reluctant to go down this impeachment pathway. But is it just that the AOC... You know, Sanders left 
or really just the left in general, I don't even think it has to be even segmented into into the, the hard left, the Democratic Party, that the base demanded it? Or do you really think that they hope that this might be the X factor to derail what looks like a very strong reelection bid for Trump? Do you know what I mean? Is this because is this they, they felt like they had no choice or this was actually a strong move? Look, they saw the economy improving, and we saw from the most recent job numbers just how much the economy has improved in the United States, not just at full employment now, but also with wages rising also. They saw uh, their traditional bases of support, the ones they thought they could never lose, specifically black Americans, uh, Latin Americans also. Um, they saw them moving away, perhaps not in massive numbers, but in enough numbers that it shifts a couple of thousand votes in particular districts that they need to win to keep the House in 2020. They also saw poor Pelosi also saw her power being leached away by the squad, by Talay, by Omar, by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she thought she had to, you know, take her take a, a new vice grip, a renewed vice grip on the power within the Democrat Party. And this was her way of doing it. In one sense, it was a sop to them, but it was also a stand back. I've got this from here, gals, sort of move. Now, you've got to feel sorry for the lady because she has made a massive, massive political miscalculation. This will haunt her for the rest of her political career. She's emboldened the president. She's made people in those battleground states realize that this is an unfair process. She's packing out Trump rallies. They've fundraised like they've never fundraised before. And, uh, you know, honestly... I think when we look back at this after the 2020 uh, election, which I think Trump will win quite handily indeed uh, after this process is over with, I think we'll look back at Nancy Pelosi as probably one of the biggest losers of this whole stretch of time that we've experienced this populist uprising. Uh, from 2016 to 2020, she will be remembered from now and forevermore as one of the big losers here. If you had to pick... Who was the most concerning Democrat opponent in the general for Trump of the field as it exists now? Plus, I will throw into the mix the possibility of a late Hillary Clinton entry into this. Who do you think is the most? I agree with you, by the way. I think Trump is going to win. And I know people are going to say, don't jinx it, Buck. And they're going to yell at me for that. But I I really do believe so. And they can blame you and me if he loses. But uh, who do you think is the most formidable, if we can even use that word, but if, if the most formidable of the Democrat options currently out there, plus Hillary as a wild card, if you want to choose her? Well, look, I think this changes almost by the week. And the reason it changes is because all of these people are quite unstable figures. So they might have one good week and then one terrible week. At the beginning, it looked like Joe Biden might come out swinging. But then it just came out Joe Biden talking about his hairy legs and kids kids jumping up and down on his lap. Um, then you obviously have the Hillary Clinton element of this, which, you know, she would be a, a formidable opponent again because of her spending power, her fundraising power, her experience in all of this. Uh, but again, I don't think she has the energy for it. One person who does have the energy for it and does have the spending power that could match President Trump's and the Trump campaigns is Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg also happens to have one of the largest databases of voters, new registered voters, because he spent all the money alongside George Soros in 2018 to make sure that they won the midterm elections. And he holds all that data himself. So if you can put that to work, if you can find some decent digital people to put that to work, he actually could threaten the president next year. And I don't believe that we're being we're jinxing it. I think we're being optimistic. Um, we also can't be complacent about these things. We've seen upsets before. We may see upsets again. Uh, but right now, I wouldn't say that there's any one person uh, who makes me think, oh, gosh, we really have to get our act together. They're, they're, they're killing it right now. 
when you look at the last election and what separated Trump and Hillary, it was hundreds of thousands of votes in a handful or let's say a half a dozen states. That was the differentiator. And I do think it's interesting when you bring up Bloomberg, he's so not what the Democratic Party base wants, right? So we just assume he can't get through a primary. But if you did put Bloomberg instead of these total lunatics who can do neither math nor nor basic policy analysis that's not laughable. I mean, people like Warren and Sanders and, you know, Warren's wealth tax understates, I just saw this yesterday, by about a trillion dollars, how much people's taxes would go up. I mean, it's just it's just absurd. But, you know, if Bloomberg became the Democrat Party's candidate, it does seem like in some you know, does Bloomberg play terribly in Pennsylvania? Does he play terribly in Florida? Does he play, you, know, you start to look at some of these states where all the Democrats would vote for him. Maybe he wouldn't have as much enthusiasm from uh, 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 black Democratic voters, from Hispanic Democratic voters. I mean, that's maybe where he loses some. But if you're looking at just independence in general in battleground states, I, mean, I think Bloomberg's much more compelling than Bernie Sanders. But. Yeah, and it also depends who the VP is on a on a Bloomberg ticket because he could carry minority voters if if the VP choice is, is correct and appeals to them. Also, yeah, Michael Bloomberg is a very very sort of straight guy. He comes across quite boring, but he also comes across like a safe pair of hands. So for ordinary people out there, which isn't the Democratic base by any stretch of the imagination, he might seem like a safer pair of hands um, than President Trump, and I don't think he is. But I'm just saying that there are people that might believe that. Um, so I, you know, there are there are there are some threats to that, and again, it will come down to to the to the detail in the data. Where do they go? Where do they target? What do they message to the to the uh, manufacturers in Pennsylvania? What do they uh, message to the farmers across across the middle of America? Uh, has Trump delivered for them? Has he delivered for them um, as as much as he said he would? You know, all of these things will come down to the detail of the messaging, the hyper specifics as they deal with it on the campaign. You're right, though. Him getting through the Democrat primary is probably the a harder part than him beating Trump for him. I think that's uh, what we're facing right now, folks. Raheem Kassam, you've heard him here before hosting the show. You've also, hopefully at this point, checked him out. His War Room podcast is just uh, rushing up the charts all the time. It is Raheem, it is Steve Bannon and Jason Miller talking about impeachment day in and day out, going deep on this, as well as other political issues and uh, news of the day. You can uh, subscribe on iTunes. Raheem, my friend, have a great weekend. Thanks for giving us your time today. You too, Buck. Thank you. Black Rifle Coffee is celebrating its fifth anniversary. So to celebrate that, they decided to start a little something called Black Rifle Friday. Now, some of you may think, is that a fictional holiday? You know, like Valentine's Day created to sell stuff? The answer is yes, because Black Rifle Coffee is all about capitalism and America. You've got to get in on the coffee club, my friends. Sign up and see all the great benefits you'll get when you belong to the most patriotic coffee club in the country. And let me tell you, how do I start every day? With a delicious cup of Black Rifle Coffee. This is my coffee company. You should make it yours, too. This is where I get my morning jolt. This is where I get my afternoon pick-me-up. Black Rifle Coffee. Support a company that serves culture and coffee to those who love America. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck to get 20% off your first purchase. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 20% off your first purchase. Again, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. Not only have we failed to see any accountability from the mainstream media on the lies they told for three years now about Trump and about Russia collusion and specifically possible FISA abuse and the dossier 
the fancy French term for the opposition research document pulled together by an anti-Trump loon named Christopher Steele. Um, None of the news outlets that were wrong about this all along have apologized, have retracted, have changed anything, really. And just to give you a sense of how wrong they were, remember, the inspector general just said the dossier was garbage. Dossier is really bad that all the major claims in it are false and were obviously false. This is the inspector general now of the FBI. Here is how the media... The biggest news outlets in the United States, those powerful media organizations, therefore, in the world, here's how they reported on Le Dossier. Parts of the now infamous dossier on Trump have proven to be true. I know the history of the dossier, but it hasn't been discredited. In fact, it's been the opposite. It's been corroborated. Much of the dossier has been corroborated. This discredited dossier, which was paid for, paid. Your intel community has corroborated all of the details in there. The meeting. Some of the substantive content of the dossier, we were able to corroborate in our intelligence community assessment, which Hmm. from other sources in which we had very high confidence. We know that with the FISA application, the relevant parts of Christopher Steele's dossier were corroborated. If the application included information from the dossier, it would only be after the FBI had, in fact, corroborated information through its own investigation. We also know that as time goes on, more and more parts of the Steele dossier get corroborated. So when the president just refers to it as fake dossier, that is false. Uh, I... I don't think that's that, that is the accurate characterization for the entirety of the dossier. Clear investigators have corroborated part of the uh, dossier. All of that is wrong. None of the dossier has been corroborated, except for, as I said, the spellings of some of the names of people in it, like Donald Trump. The travel is wrong, except for travel that would have been known from publicly reported news sources. There's nothing in there that is damning that is true. None of the core allegations, which included that Carter Page was going to get $19 billion, folks. That's billion with a B because of the Russia-Trump collusion scheme. Uh, that was all false. And notice how, notice this month, oh, Alison Camerata over at CNN. No, sir, the dossier has been largely corroborated. I used to work at Fox, but now I work for Jeff Zucker at CNN, and I will do his bidding as is needed for my paycheck. Hello, sir. Yeah, she, she, man, what a, what a fall from grace. Go over there. But, you know, Zucker holds the purse strings for all the employees over there. They got to do what they got to do, I suppose. The dossier has been, your own intelligence community has been largely corroborated. No. No, that's not true. Also, notice how Clapper kept trying to keep the dossier alive. He clearly believed it early on. And I'm not sure if he was so dumb, but he, by the way, Clapper is notoriously stupid. And I mean that from people that I know within the intelligence community who are really, really smart, because those people do exist. Clapper is considered a world-class dumbass. Oh, Buck, he was DNI. What does the DNI even do? Nobody even knows, including the DNI. Didn't even exist until after 9 11. They're like, oh, we need to create a, a coordinating agency or coordinating agency and coordinating job to coordinate a lot of the coordination. I mean, it's just nonsense. It's a self licking ice cream cone on steroids. Very strong ice cream cone. <sighs> 
but notice that they did not change any of this after it came out. They have not been willing to say, oh, we were wrong. They will not admit that they were wrong. Um, this is because journalism is no longer a profession marked by transparency and integrity or even the attempt to portray oneself as having integrity or transparency, it is activism. It is about putting points on the board for one team, and that team is Team Lib. That is what matters to them. That is what motivates liberals in the media in this whole process. And it's just stunning. And by the way, we cut that clip uh, down from it's circling around the Internet right now. We cut that down considerably. It goes on even longer. Just more and more people, CNN, MSNBC, and Rachel Maddow. Has any of the dossier been disproven? And then, you know, Clapper. I know, Clapper sounds kind of like gurgling gurgling. Same idea. They're probably distant relatives or something. The dossier hasn't been fully some parts. These were the people that were in charge of substantial government resources and given a lot of government authority that i would say should be reason enough for people to be deeply concerned uh, just just the fact that we have people of such absolute low integrity and honestly intelligence in these very very high roles within for example the intelligence community that should be of deep concern to everyone but there you have it i mean the the dossier is a total a total sham, completely absurd, and I have to say I'm I'm wondering when people will finally, if people will finally ever wake up to the understanding of what really happened here. The left wing and the deep state told lies, and the FBI piled more lies on those lies to try and investigate and destroy President Trump. That is what happened. Secretary, all of these, all of these students claims I have to be worked in education my entire life. I've dedicated my life to this work. I've worked with Democrats and Republicans to advance the goal of quality education for young people. I've had some honest disagreements with my friends in the Republican Party about how to move education forward, but I've never, not one time, believed that they were out to destroy public education until I met you. Oh, that seems like a constructive thing for a member of Congress to say to the education secretary, Betsy DeVos. Right? That, that seems like a fair thing. Destroy public education. Democrats are so deeply invested in our largely decrepit, failing, wildly inflated, expensive underperforming public education system, they really view it as an article of faith. I mean, to be a good Democrat, to be a Democrat in good standing, you have to say things like, you know, teachers just want to teach and it's all about the kids and public schools, a, a quality education for every person, irrespective of, of race, creed, religion, et cetera, et cetera. You just have to repeat these talking points all the time. And you're not allowed to say, well, hold on a second. Why do our public schools never really get better? Why do test scores stay the same despite vast infusions of capital into the public school system? Why are there so many failing public schools? And why is there such a resistance to trying new things, even when just trying new things in places where those schools are failing? 
charter schools being the best, but not the only example of it. And a vouchers would be another thing. But charter schools are just public schools that are trying a new approach so that kids have a better chance of getting a good education. But here's the the well, there are few fundamental lies that the left tells about education all the time and that you will never escape from this. And I would note that conservatives should be much more aggressive about pushing a a, a counter narrative to the, you know, just more money for public education, just shovel more money in than you already do. I mean, how is it possible that the District of Columbia, for example, spends, I think it's over $20,000 per pupil, which would send you in, in most places in the country, be, send you to a very good private school if you wanted to, or if you took that money and just wrote a check. But the District of Columbia spends, you know, close to or upwards of $20,000 per student. And sure enough, the outcomes are terrible. They're abysmal. And when someone comes along and says, hold on a minute, and that's in our nation's capital, you'd think that members of Congress would be familiar with what's going on there, but they don't care. Because you have to get the fundamental fallacies. Here's the first one, that our public school system is first and foremost about education. It is not. The public school system is a jobs program and a political advocacy organization for Democrat adults. That's what it is. It is effectively a very large union of sorts where the people that work in the public school system are all told that they, they first of all, have to support the system that they're in. You're not, if you try to advocate for reforms of it, you become a bad person. We're always told by you know these national association of teachers and different federations that teachers just want to teach. I, I remember having a few conversations with, uh, I think it was Randy Weingarten is her name, and it's just this, it's the same blather every time, the same talking points. Teachers aren't paid enough. Teachers work so hard, they don't get enough money in the public school system. We just, you know, it's about the kids, and kids need a good education. And these all sound like good things. Okay, well, let's look at what the real problems are with public schools district by district across the country. Why are there places where failure is the expectation? Why are there places where every time there's any effort to reward good teachers and punish bad teachers, the public sector unions lash out, band together, do everything they can to shut that effort down? Remember that the outrage in Wisconsin over Governor Scott Walker was really about trying to reform public sector workers' pensions and benefits. How dare he in the state of, how dare you? <laughs> Which now, we all know, is, that's, like a, that's become a, a Greta thing. How dare you? How dare you, sir? <laughs> so I'd be like, chill, Greta, chill. Uh, but really, that, that was the outrage that he committed in Wisconsin, was trying to change some of the benefits and trying to change some of the, uh, the contracts taxpayers have to foot the bill for in a state like Wisconsin. And they had sit-ins in the state capitol, and there were walkouts, and there were protests, and there, everyone completely lost their minds. It wasn't about, well, hold on a second, are property taxes too high? It wasn't about, our teachers doing a good job in schools either? That much is for sure. Because the same way that the federal bureaucracy, 95% of the federal bureaucracy, and I, I cannot repeat that enough for all of you, 95% of federal bureaucrats who donated in the last election supported Hillary Clinton. Okay? So, really, the entire federal government employee base, not including the military, thank God, but all the people who were like me, the federal civil servants, so to speak, that's what we call ourselves, we really serve the 
serve the bureaucracy more than we serve the people most of the time. But they were all Hillary, Hillary people. And if you were to look at what the truth is of public school teachers across the country, I know they're not all um, left wing, but all of the teachers unions certainly are. And they support Democrats without without real exception in any major state and any major teachers union, especially all the national teachers unions. This is just a big fundraising scheme for Democrats. And they pretend that they're going to make things better for people. They're going to make things better for the kids. They don't care about the kids. That's all a myth. That's all a lie. But Betsy DeVos attacking I'm sorry, uh, Frederica Wilson attacking Betsy DeVos here, saying that she wants to destroy public education. And Betsy DeVos is a billionaire who wants particularly underprivileged and minority kids to have a better shot at a good education. Now, I'd ask you this. Who do you think is more open to and has more expertise in ways that you could actually accomplish that? Frederica Wilson or Betsy DeVos, education secretary? And DeVos didn't just get this job out of nowhere. Yes, she's got a billionaire husband and she's tied into the Trumps, but she also has been working particularly on charter schools and on school choice as an issue for a long time. Democrats hate that issue. Why would they hate charter schools when they've been shown to be so effective in so many places? Because they do a couple of things. One, it it changes the system right now. And the system is the money goes into these schools where people are already part of these unions. And then they, those teachers unions donate money to Democrat politicians. And those Democrat politicians make sure the teachers in the public school systems of major, major cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, et cetera, are effectively unfireable, can get tenure, uh, you know, work the bare minimum hours they can get the maximum pay they can get the maximum benefits, you know, retirement stuff, all of it. That's the whole that's the real point. I mean, the fact that you have kids that are going to schools that are horrific in many places across this country, the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That's really not the problem that Democrats have with this. It's when you attack the power structure and anything that does that, anything that goes to their power structure is what they will try to shut down and destroy right away. Also reminds me of this uh, video that is circulating right now. You know, we often talk about the power of, uh, of narrative. What does that mean? It's a term you hear a lot now, especially from uh, in any discussion of the media. And I'm reminded of this video that is now has gone very viral all over the Internet about a boy in Florida, according to a whole bunch of different news outlets, Daily Mail being one of them. He's 14 years old on a school bus. And his name is Tyler, and he had to be hospitalized after five classmates of his, all minorities, and this will come into the narrative component in a second, attacked him for wearing a MAGA hat. Now, Tyler is a, is a, white, uh, a white kid. He's 14, and he was wearing a MAGA hat. And uh, this attack of these uh, five... Uh, it's actually, I believe, a, a few African-American females and a couple of African-American males that are beating him. I mean, it is a, an absolutely vicious attack. I mean, it's, it's hard to watch. It turns your stomach when you watch it. Because, you know, look, I, I was in school. I remember people would get into, you know, a fight here or there. But there's always this. There's a couple of things that go to when something goes from being a schoolyard brawl to being something else. You know, one of them is... Okay, well, when it's clear that one person is really just hurting another person, do they stop? You know, if you punch, if someone gets punched in the face, they fall to the ground. 
Is that the end of it? Or does the person then get on top of them and just mash their face into the concrete and keep doing it and doing it and doing it and someone pulls them off? And then also, is it a mob of people? I mean, there are a few things more cowardly that one can do than to attack somebody with a group of people. Um, there, there is just no way to describe that other than the absolute absence of, of any decency, of any honor, um, and of any just human feeling, really. I mean, human, human basic uh, sympathy and kindness. I mean, to attack somebody when you have them outnumbered in this way, five to one, and uh, this is just appalling the way this attack went down. And this was on a public school bus. You know, we have all these teachers, all these administrators who are paid. We have a six-fold increase in administrators in the public school system in the last two decades. Administrators, not teaching staff, people that are just there, you know, whether it's nurses or coaches or speech pathologists or English as a second language tutors or whatever, or just bureaucrats who sit around shuffling paper in the school system, you know, assistant, assistant principals who are making 150 grand a year, right? I mean, that kind of stuff. Here's what the Daily Mail reported about this attack, again, on a school bus in Florida. The boy's mother explained she believes the attackers were motivated by a Trump 2020 campaign hat that her son had previously worn to school. She said the boy stopped wearing the hat due to harassment, but the bullying continued. To be clear, my son bought his Trump 2020 hat with his own money at the flea market a few weeks ago. He was proud to wear it. He wore it to school, but due to bullying, he put it away and didn't wear it to school again. Sadly, the damage was done and he was already a target. From that point, he was getting hit and verbally abused and all came to a head on the bus attack. Um, yeah, the boy was had to be evaluated for serious head injuries. The video shows three African-American females and two, Afri- two, two African-American males uh, just absolutely pummeling this kid who is defenseless. Like he's curled up in a ball on this bus on this uh, bus bench, essentially, you know, uh, and, and he's just being just, they're just pounding him, just pounding him. And these are, you know, young teenagers, but, you know, they're big enough that they can hurt, they can really hurt people. And, and here's where I want to bring up the, the issue of narrative. Because he's white and because it's about somebody who was a Trump supporter and because all of his attackers were non-white, the media doesn't really care about this story. They have a thousand ways that they would rationalize that or justify it or or explain that to you. But we all understand that if this were an African-American student who was attacked by five white students and it's because the African-American student, let's say, was somebody who was an Obama supporter or a Biden supporter, a Warren supporter, you know, doesn't anything. And actually, forget about even being a political supporter. If you just had a video of five white students beating a. A black student in this way, the media would be wall to wall news coverage of this. We'd be having national conversations about racism in America and about a history of of, you know, of segregation, of slavery, of you know, just all the race relations topics would be front CNN. Anderson Cooper would be giving teary eyed monologues about how we haven't made any progress in race in this country. I mean, liberals are, are obsessed with that particular narrative. And we all know this. I mean, I don't think there's a serious, intelligent human being in the country over the age of, you know, 10, who, if told the different scenarios here, would say, no, you're, you're wrong. If you had if you had these five students, if the if you reverse the races and reverse the politics, this wouldn't be a, treated as a much, much bigger story. We all understand this. That's what narrative is all about. 
when everyone in the newsrooms of the major organizations that cover these things across the country thinks the same way because they've all been told the same storyline that a white student being beaten, you know, they could have beaten this kid into a coma. I mean, it's horrible what they did to him Uh, being beaten by because he was wearing a Trump hat and by five minority students who perhaps it is possible that there was anti-white animus involved in this attack, too, right? That is possible. We, it would be assumed if, if you were looking at this from the other perspective I was bringing up. The media would all assume it. That's the power of narrative. It's the filter through which the stories are told in this country. And it's one that you see coming up time and again. And then the people that are doing it, and it's so obvious, pretend that it's not there. Oh, no, we're not, we're not viewing it the way that you say we are, but we all know they are. Mostly because the media lies. And then I'm just reminded of uh, my, little, uh, my little buddy, Michael Malice, who came in here recently and he was saying that public schools are prisons for children. I, again, Mike likes to, I, I find him amusing. He says things that are, are engaging, but often, uh, often exaggerated. I mean, that's not true at public schools in you know, New Canaan, Connecticut, but it is true in some places across the country where kids are effectively being just held all day long as a form of of babysitting. And there is not enough done in terms of discipline. The the school, the prison pipeline means that when kids do things like this and really attack somebody and really hurt them, they won't face any real discipline. It's appalling. But this is the public school system that liberals always defend all the time. They don't want better options. They don't want things to improve. They like it the way it is because for them, it's a jobs program and a Democrat vote machine. That's what the public school system is. Everybody, I hope you're enjoying the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Those of you that subscribe to it, please do uh, do that. Subscribe to it if you haven't already. You can do it on iTunes and the iHeart app. You will be able to listen 3 Eastern every day. You also can please give us a rating there. That really helps. You know, click uh, five stars and tell everybody how much you enjoy this show and why you enjoy the show and then share it. Uh, you are my frontline to- uh, troops. <laughs> you are my frontline troops for passing the buck. And it's really important to me that we continue to grow the show, that more people know about what we're doing here. You also can watch us on channel 248 on the Pluto TV app. The channel is called The First. You'll see The Buck Sexton Show and The Jesse Kelly Show. And there will be other shows that we're launching in the new year, exciting talents in the conservative space. We're all about free speech and telling it like it is. People that you will most likely all know. Uh, We will be bringing them on, and uh, we're going to really be making a go of it with the first on Pluto TV. So uh, we also have producer Mark coming back next week, by the way. So those of you that want to ask producer Mark questions about his luxurious two-week honeymoon, by the way, now's the time to do that. Send us an email at teambuck at iheartmedia.com, or if you want to send us a Facebook message, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's how we roll. Global Verification Network is the only dual-certified veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. They are federally certified as a veteran-owned small business, and they are headquartered in Chicago with offices throughout the nation. Their risk mitigation experts work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. So for all of your background check needs, call Global Verification Network. No data or client information is ever offshored, and all of their employees are located here in the United States. Keep it all here at home in the U.S. and go with a veteran-owned and operated company for all of your background check needs. Global Verification Network. Call 877-695-1179. 
Again, that's 877-695-1179 or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com, Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned. Okay, do you believe employers should offer health care to every employee that, that they have? I think that as part of a benefits package, they should determine what is the best way and what do the workers okay, want. Okay, so no, you don't believe it should be uniformly offered. Um, as, I think it should be what right. workers want and what employers Okay, so the answer is no. Um, so, and similarly, your, your view on parental leave is to let the market decide. Um, do we know how long puppies are allowed to stay with their mothers after a dog has given birth? I don't. Uh, eight weeks. Wow. So the market has decided <laughs> that women and people who give birth deserve less time with their children than a dog. And I think that that, at its core, has shown that the market has failed to treat people with dignity and with basic respect. And so when that happens, I think it's our job as the public to redefine the rules of society and to, peop- and to treat people who give birth with the dignity that they deserve. Also, like, I just thought that this was, like, a really powerful analogy because I was, like, analogizing. And I just was like, yeah, like, I mean, do you know how long puppies get to spend with their mothers? Because, like, it's eight weeks. Okay, so this is all about paid family leave. But it's also a moment to see central planning at work and the idiocy of many of the central planners on display. Um few things here. Let, let's let's play out this little analogy that uh, Ocasio-Cortez presents here to try and, and bash. I believe it's somebody from the Heritage Foundation in this you know congressional hearing they were having on on paid family leave. Yes, puppies are are kept together with their mothers for eight weeks. That is that is a thing that is true before they can be sold. That's right. We're talking about before you could sell an animal. It is kept with its mother for eight weeks, and that is for reasons of health and vaccination. And then it is sold. So, and it's a dog. But even beyond that, puppies and their their canine mothers, uh, canine mothers don't have jobs. So there's no loss to anyone or anything. There's no, like, society of dogs out there who are like, roll, roll, can't, can't pay the bills, roll, roll. You know, there's no dogs that are saying they got to close the shop down because one of their workers has a little puppy at its, you know, at his little dog area for the feeding and everything else for eight weeks. This is the dumbest analogy you've ever heard in my life. What does this have to do with anything? I mean, this is just the demagoguery of an idiot. Puppies don't have. I mean, sorry, I keep saying puppies. Dogs don't have jobs. So there's no loss in keeping a dog together with a puppy. And then, if we're really talking about this, puppies then get sold. They never meet their fathers. They get sold, and they're animals. What is she talking about? The issue with paid family leave is that it is, yet again, another, it's just like minimum wage. It is a a popular-sounding program that does not work the way that we are told it will work, and that the public generally supports because the public does not have a particularly firm grasp on what exactly paid family leave means. Like, what does it mean for a business? What does it mean for 
wages for hiring for jobs. It sounds good, just like minimum wage sounds good. And for some people, it will be good. Here's the truth about paid family leave. It already exists in a lot of states. You already have state laws about family leave policies. And I also think there's more and more places have paternity leave now. And I just have to laugh. It's, you know, even if even if I could theoretically take off eight weeks for paternity leave, the notion that I would leave the first of all, not leaving the freedom up for eight weeks regardless. But the notion that I would leave this show behind for eight weeks because I, I my wife, who does not exist yet, would have just had a baby who also does not exist yet. Uh, I couldn't do that. All right. I mean, producer Brandon could take the mic for a few days and he would do a fantastic job. But there are limits to like how long I could just have producer Brandon spinning old school rock and roll for you and telling you about the eating habits of Slash, the guitarist from Guns N' Roses. Right. So there's only so much that we're going to be able to be gone from the show before it's no longer the show. Um, And this is true of a lot of different people on their businesses. You know, if you are working in a small business Let's say there's only four or five employees and one person's going to be gone for eight solid weeks. That is a true financial hardship for that business. And if it's not, then they probably don't need that person in the first place. So then you're just proving that you are not necessary to the functioning of that for-profit enterprise. But a lot of states already have paid family leave. And what you find out is that overwhelmingly the people that use paid family leave are upper middle class and above on the wealth spectrum. This is just like telling people that you want to have college, uh, you know, student loan forgiveness and say you're doing it to help the working class. It doesn't help the working class. People in the working class who do go to college tend to go to community colleges, tend to go to junior college programs, for-profit colleges. Um, They're not the ones who are going to have this tremendous benefit if you were to wipe away student loans because community college, for example, is basically free. No, it's people that get a degree in, you know, feminist literature of Antarctica. They want their $70,000 in loans to go away. But those tend to also be people who grew up in relatively well-off suburbs of, of Democrat stronghold cities across the country. And they just want someone to make their make their problems disappear. Well, the same thing is true in some ways of paid family leave. There are states that already have it. And yes, people and people like it when they can take it. I mean, it's a way, it's central planning, it's a government intervention in the market, and that tells businesses you have to give people at least eight weeks of this. Guess what? If you're a, uh, a worker at the lower end of the wage spectrum, it's much less likely that you will take advantage of this program. It's much less likely that you'll be somebody who is able to take that paid family leave because the business is going to take some they can't technically you know they can't fire you i think under these different rules of course but there will be ramifications you know this is it's not good for the perhaps the business has to close especially if we're talking about small and family-owned businesses you only have a few employees and then also there are a lot of ways that people take family leave that have nothing to do with government mandates you have stored you know comp time compensated time or compensation time uh you have Vacation days, sick leave, and people will take off, you know, a few weeks. I mean, eight weeks. I haven't had, Producer Brandon, have you had eight weeks off from employment since you started working out of college? What's a day off? Yeah, exactly. No. I haven't had eight weeks. I don't think I've had 
two weeks off. No, I've since never I had... started working right out of college. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't. That's why I was surprised. A two week honeymoon. I was like, that's that's legal. You can do that. Oh, we're talking. Oh, a little, little bit. Of shot of, shots fired. Shots fired. We got <laughs> producer Brandon saying that producer Mark. It's I mean, taking a little bit of extra beach time. I'm not going to lie. Producer Mark has been away for a little while here. I mean, you know, I'm if, not even going to recognize him when he comes back. If you're allowed, you, go for it. What do, what do you think of the chances that he comes back and he's got like, uh, you know, like the like the beads in his hair, like <laughs> like, my, like, like Michael, Michael Scott. Scott from The Office when he comes back from uh, yeah, sandals, all inclusive. He'll be playing the uh, the the drums, the the reggae drums. Oh too. man, yeah, uh, is, is those steel drums, right? Steel drums, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, hot, I mean, hot, hot. yeah. He, he's gonna he's gonna come back and he's gonna be doing his doing his thing for sure. But he's been gone for two weeks, man. I don't think I've taken two weeks off from work, and I don't even know. I'm going for a week, and I miss the show so much. I'm like, did everybody forget about the show? I freak out. We're gonna be out for a few days at the end of this month, but we're gonna have guest hosts, and you know, we'll, we'll keep the party rocking as much as we can. I almost think that I wanna, you know, my birthday is December 28th, and I'm thinking that maybe I want to do a show just because I want to do a show that day because. I want to spend my day with the team. I don't know. That might sound corny to some of you, but that's kind of how it feels. Um, I, you know, I, I don't enjoy being off for that for that much more than you know two or three days beyond a weekend, two or three days at a time. After that, it starts to feel like, uh, what exactly am I doing here? But back to paid family leave. I mean, this is this is the reality of it. It sounds good, and then you look at it, and it just means that there's a lot of you know you're squeezing the balloon on one side, and the air goes into another. There's a lot of ways that this has. Um, ramifications for people that they don't necessarily see right away. It also means that, especially in places where it's only maternity leave, some businesses are, this is a real gender issue because some businesses will say, we're going to take this person on and maybe they're going to, you know, and and I know that this kind of gender discrimination is illegal, but it's very hard to prove. So I'm going to take this person on and that means that maybe we'll have to deal with a two or three month absence in in their employment and and keep paying them, by the way, and pay their health benefits and everything. For that whole period, that that's a big uh, that would what you call a big a big ticket item. Uh, that's not a small thing. Um, but you know, I just think the AOC thing about puppies get to stay with like their like mama puppy for like eight weeks. So like, so should every human. That is not uh, that is not how it works. There you go. And by the way, you know Elizabeth. I was making fun of Elizabeth Warren yesterday, which is always fun. And Elizabeth Warren is trying to figure out how to differentiate herself from the other Democrat candidates because, you know, her Medicare for all proposal is pretty much looking like a disaster and a big problem for her now. And so she's out there trying to say that, well, she doesn't she doesn't want to differentiate herself because to differentiate herself from other Democrats, she would have to criticize the Democrats. And she doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to help the big, bad, mean Republicans. Uh, Would you please play clip 12, producer Brandon? Unlike some candidates for the Democratic nomination, I'm not betting my agenda on the naive hope that if Democrats adopt Republican critiques of progressive policies or make vague calls for unity, that somehow the wealthy and well-connected will stand down. Wow. More absolutely mind-numbing class warfare from Elizabeth Warren. It has nothing to do with anything. It is It is stunning. When, when you see who was in the Republican field back in 2016, uh, you see the, just the, the, the intellectual quality of the Republican candidates at that point. Uh, and even for candidates, it didn't get very far. But you see, you know, Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina, 
uh, you know, you, you look at people that have been in the Republican primaries, like like Newt Gingrich, and whether you like them or not, like their policies. I mean, these are very smart. These are very serious people. These are people that you could sit down and they know stuff, and you can have a real discussion with them. I mean, you know, Marco Rubio is a, is a is a pretty sharp guy too. He's been a little disappointing from what a lot of us had hoped he would be. I think as a as a force in the Republican Party, he's been wrong on some important stuff. But you know, he he can certainly sound the part sometimes. Uh, and, and there are others who, in that Republican primary, I just think you could you could look at them and say, even if I don't think that they have the right idea, at least they're they're people with ideas. Uh, you look at these Democrats, and it's just fantasy land stuff. I mean, it's absurd. And Warren and Sanders are the best examples of this. But I mean, Joe Biden believes whatever Joe Biden has to believe to get elected. He thinks, but that's all. That's his whole mo. That's the way he does things. And Warren is such a construct. I mean, the media likes Elizabeth Warren. They like aspects of her personal story, not the fake Cherokee stuff so much, but the you know other aspects of it. And then when she's given an opportunity to really show why are you better, why are you different from these other Democrats out there, she just has nothing to say other than I don't want to criticize them like Republicans. This is why this is the most unsettled field it feels like at this point in any primary I can remember on either side of the aisle. There's just no way that anybody could point to one of these. And the people I know who follow politics all day long, they look at this field and they're changing their mind every day about who they think the eventual nominee is going to be. I mean, they're changing their mind and deciding that, you know, yeah, it will be Biden. No, it won't be Biden. Maybe it'll be Warren. No, no, maybe it'll be Buttigieg, which just goes to, I think, the overall weakness, not just of these candidates, but of the Democrat message right now. Yeah, that's right. Strong economy and, and peace and the country doing well. Democrats apparently don't like that. I understand you want to do whatever you have to do to keep your family safe and secure. But there's one thing that can feel a little strange, and maybe you don't want to deal with it. Life insurance. First time I had to deal with life insurance, I was in my 20s. I was deploying overseas, and I figured, well, I've got to do the responsible thing and take out a policy in case the unexpected happens. So you need to do the same to make sure your family is safe facing an uncertain future. And that's why I want you to check out my friends at Ethos Life Insurance. You see, with Ethos, there's no hassle. It's modern life insurance for people who don't want to waste a lot of time and detailed contracts and people that are trying to oversell them something, Ethos's approach is simple. They just take technology, industry expertise, and a human touch to find the right policy for your budget. It only takes about 10 minutes, and you can make sure your family has the financial security they need. Get a fast, free, and personalized quote right now at ethoslife.com. Again, that's ethoslife.com. We're having a very exciting month in Washington, D.C., There haven't been too many like it. I will say this. Uh, We have the best economy we've ever had in the history of our country. And the stock market, as you probably have heard, all those 401ks and all of those jobs out there, the stock market just hit a brand new high. That would be 129 records that we have in really fairly much substantially less than three years. Best economy in our lifetimes. Have to keep reminding you of that. How could a president be in a stronger position for re-election? Not at war, not starting wars, not failing in some major foreign policy crisis, working dutifully and with some success to secure the border. It's not perfect yet, but it's gotten a lot better. 
a crisis that was in terms of the child migrant crisis at the southern border inherited from the Obama administration and has been now pretty successfully dealt with, at least that component of it. We still don't have a wall, but there has been action taken. Oh, don't even get me started on the judges. I've been meaning to talk about this. Cocaine Mitch is ramming through federal judges into the uh, conservative, excellent, Federalist Society approved, constitutionally sound federal judges. Like, it's a, he's a lean, mean judge confirmation machine. So say what you will, Mitch McConnell, he understands his legacy is going to be that there will finally be a real movement of constitutionalism and rule of law in the federal bench instead of what we've had in recent years where Obama was just putting left-wing activists up all the time. People that give the left what they want. What does the law say? It does not matter. The law says what the left wants it to say. So that's been a big change. But the judge, I mean, the judges that we've gotten, look, Trump is better on judges than any of his predecessors. And that really matters. That's going to matter even if you have a Democrat administration coming up, folks. Guess what? There's going to be all those conservative judges. These are lifetime appointments. Not just the Supreme Court situation. And, and there are a lot of people who point out that we're already heading into the most you know, combustible, fiery election cycle, I think, in, in history uh, for any, well, at least in living memory. And you might add on to that a possible additional Supreme Court vacancy next year or the recognition that even if the vacancy isn't next year, it could be within the next few years. Justice Ginsburg at some point may have to just retire for health and age reasons. I mean, the day will come. Liberals are all pretending like that will never happen, at least until there's a Democrat president. But um, that's not up to them, really. That's that's not something that they can they can plan on. Think about if you added that a Supreme Court vacancy into the mix with everything else that's going on. You know, people have lived for decades now. I mean, I think of my generation, people that are in their in their 30s, uh, grew up with such a liberal dominance of of media, of the academy, and now really of corporate America as well, at least corporate culture. And they think that this is the way this is all going to be. And they're they're used to having the Supreme Court deliver progressive cultural victories time and time again. And they may now be facing in the relatively near future the prospect of a court that says, no, the law is the law, and we're not just going to hand you by diktat whatever policy that you think is going to be considered a progressive victory. We're not going to do that anymore. So you've got an excellent economy, fantastic judges, border security happening, a trade deal with China in the opening phases, but looks like that deal is at least getting somewhere Unemployment at a 50-year low. No major wars started. What, what, is, what is the crisis right now? What is the crisis that this country faces that the president is inadequately dealing with or addressing? They don't have one. They do not have anything. To, all they have is impeachment, orange man, bad, traitor, yell crazy stuff, say he's a white nationalist. This is just, this is their hysterics. As promised, because it's his last day as this extended fill-in for producer Mark, who is going to come back with 
with tan lines, probably a little bit of uh, what is this called? Sun in when you put like blonde stuff in your hair when you're in high school. You ever remember that? People would like try to. Oh, sure. And if your hair was dark, it would turn orange. But this was like it was like in the frosted tips era, too. The people would frost their hair a little bit. <laughs> I never did that to my to my credit, I think. Uh, but when producer Mark comes back with his tan and his stories of drinking rum on the beach and everything else. Uh, producer Brandon's last day filling in today. So I said we want to get producer Brandon to talk to us about he is a podcast host. In fact, he's got his own podcast. It is called Appetite for Distortion. Mm-hmm. Producer Brandon, what is this? I appreciate you giving me uh, the platform of the, of the Freedom of Hut. As you call it, the, the Freedom Hut, I, I guess I refer to mine as a uh, a Guns N' Roses themed bar mitzvah party of a podcast sometimes. So how did you come upon this? So, I mean, is Guns N' Roses the greatest rock band of all time? Is that really how I mean, this all I mean, that's such touched? a long conversation. I mean, they're my personal <laughs> favorite. <laughs> that's such a long conversation. I mean, did. I've done like over, I think I just recorded my 161st episode. It's going on for a few years. But, I mean, I th- we've talked off air, even a little on air. I've I've been, I've done classic rock radio behind the scenes, like what I do for you, board hopping and audio editing. And a friend of mine who I met over at Sirius uh, XM when I worked there, he just goes, we should start a Guns N' Roses podcast. And I go, that's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would I? I would get bored, even though they're my favorite band. But at the time, uh, you may know uh, Ian Scotto. You remember oh, him? Of course, right? Ian's a buddy of mine. Sure, and he had a special operations podcast, and he actually has a, a new one now, uh, Battleline, I think, where he interviews a lot of you know former people who who served, and he was making money off it. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe there's something to this podcast thing. And he said it was all about the guests. And I, I couldn't believe, because we're not as the high level as Buck Sexton in interviewing the president of the United States, of who we would get. But over time, I've gotten you know Alice Cooper and, and Joe Elliott of Def Leppard and Dave Mustaine of, of Megadeth. And it's not just rock. Anything that falls under the, the six degrees of, instead of Kevin Bacon, GNR Bacon, I make it work. So wait, you interviewed Alice Cooper? Yeah. What was he like? It was really nice. It was over the phone, but it was it was really yeah, nice. Yeah, it was a radio interview, but yeah, it's like, what do you guys talk about? So, I mean, usually these- Because I, I, whenever I think of him, I think of, you know, Millie Wake and The Good sure. Land and, you know, We're Not Worthy and- Sure. You know, he, he was, that's one of the best scenes in Wayne's World. Absolutely. I mean, he's still touring. Is he? Oh, yeah. How old is he? Early 70s. Wow. So there, with him specifically, obviously you would t- want to talk to Alice Cooper regardless, but he has Guns N' Roses ties, so I, that's how I make it work. He sang on a song called The Garden off uh, Use Your Illusion 1 off uh, what GNR's was a double album, 1991. But he also had a band, uh, still has a band with Johnny Depp called The Hollywood Vampires, and that started with Duff McKagan of GNR, so a lot of ties there. So we were promoting Hollywood Vampires, and I kind of got the history of the song he recorded with GNR and how Axel came to him at 3 in the morning wanting to do this one piece of this song. So yeah, uh, whether it just be rock stars, and I don't want to limit myself to that. So I've had uh, comedians like Tom Green. I spent an hour with Jim Brewer talking about when Axel filled in for for ACDC. And did you ever hear Jim Brewer's thing where he talked about the party that different liquors have in your stomach? Absolutely, party. Absolutely. I think I listened to that a thousand times when I was in college. I mean, he's brilliant. So it's like someone like Jim Brewer. I can. He's just funny on his own, and I'm not going to make it the whole hour just about. Guns N' Roses, I would be bored, but there's a certain tie to it that I kind of make it work. Like you, you know what you're getting with impersonations, and you'll talk about fun stuff, but you know you're 
your belief systems. You, you People come to you for a reason. So that's kind of like the angle that I do. Instead of just having a generic rock podcast, I give it a, a GNR spin. Why, why Guns N' Roses, by the way? I've, we talked about that in the earlier episodes. And think about it this way. You know, just because they're my favorite band, that doesn't to me that doesn't matter. I think regardless of what age you are, whether you're around our age, late 30s, or if you're young, you know, if you're a, a tween, or if you're older, you know who they are. I don't know if you saw this thing that went viral where Billie Eilish was on Jimmy Kimmel and she had no idea who Van Halen was. I guarantee you she knows Guns N' Roses. Because Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City is played everywhere and consistently everywhere. So I feel like that was a band that everybody can relate to in some way. It wouldn't be a turnoff to to listen to me, whether you're a diehard fan or or not. So you know, it's primarily interview based, and sometimes I, if it's if if there's a certain topic that relates to GNR, like I talk a lot about mental health and addiction and substance abuse. So I I will talk about not just the band member struggles with it. I'll talk about mine. My friends, I will have listeners come on the show because you don't have to be famous to have a great story. So I'll have listeners come on and talk about their fan obsession a little bit and uh, find out all, all about them. And sometimes I'll even have them come on and, and co-host because sometimes I'll have fans recruit a guest for me. And that's like their gift is like you can co-host this this interview with me with this famous person. Who's the best hair band of the 80s other than Guns N' Roses? See, and we'll put aside whether Guns N' Roses is a hair band. Yeah, or not. I, I don't. Yeah, you said it. I, I don't personally think they are best. I mean, probably Poison. I would think oh, they're the most associated. Brett Michaels, known from his appearing on The Apprentice with none other than our President Donald Trump. I know exactly. So it's and Poison is going out on tour. You're getting cut. We should go to that. Poison, Def Leppard, and Motley Crue, and Joan Jett going out on tour this summer. Oh wow. Actually, that would be kind of cool. You know, I watched. Do you remember the? Do you remember the song "Mama's Fallen Angel" yeah. by Poison? Yeah, yeah, sure. I remember watching that music video like endlessly on MTV when I was like a kid. I, I don't. Mean, I don't even remember how old I was. I just remember seeing that. That and also Aerosmith. Um, uh, not wait, what's the one? Oh, "Love in an Elevator." Sure, going down. Yeah, "Love in an Elevator" was a, was a great one. I'm trying to think of like the best. MTV videos that I saw. I mean, I used to watch MTV. It was amazing. It was like a phenomenon when it first came out. It felt like it was the beating heart of American culture in the music scene, at least in some ways, for so such a long time. And then, of course, now it's like all teen mom stuff. But. See, that was a good, uh, speaking of jumping off that, an interview that I had. His name was, I forget his, his real name, but it was Slam. He was an early MTV VJ, actually hired by Bob Pittman, who owns iHeartRadio. Right. So uh, Guns N' Roses' first radio, uh, excuse me, TV appearance ever, and they destroyed the set. And I interviewed that guy who was a young VJ who's, you know, I think he's famous in St. Louis, still doing radio. They're talking about the early days of MTV. So we'll focus on that. And it just happens to have that GNR, you know, M. Night Shyamalan twist to it. Is, is, there, is there an 80s rock song that comes on and you're just like, people need to never hear this, like need to never play this <laughs> one ever again? Because I, I heard someone say that, uh, that the band that does, um, wait, was it... Uh, you know, she's my cherry pie. That the guys who actually like the band, they hate that song now. Sure, that's um, it's it's interesting too because I guess interviewed the, the the woman from that video, uh, Bobby Brown. You did? Yeah, yeah. Not so not Bobby Brown. Like you're interviewing like really cool people here, by the way. I mean, like this is like really, really interesting stuff. I'm gonna start downloading this podcast. I, I I'm not want to toot my own horn, but I've really gotten some awesome people on the podcast. I'm really surprised. Like I, I really 
And so, so what was that like? So she's the, the she's my cherry pie, Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown, sure. She was uh, engaged. I don't know if she if she was officially married to Janie Lane, who was the lead singer who passed away a few years ago from you know substance abuse. And yeah, he he hated that song. That wasn't supposed to be on there. It was the the record label that kind of forced it on there. The next thing he knows, he's like doing everything cherry pie. So uh, yeah, there was a when VH1 used to have the behind the musics. It was a very famous clip of him saying that I could have. You know, I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing what he said. He's like, I could have shot myself in the head for 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 saying that. That's not how he passed away, but uh, it, it's controversial, I guess, that that song at that time. So talking to her, was it White Snake? Is that the no Warrant? Warrant. Warrant. And I've I've also lead, uh, interviewed the lead singer of White Snake. Uh, Dave, What's their big song? David uh, Coverdale. Uh, Here I go again. There we go. It's, right it's now. Which it's a, old school brought that one back with uh, yes, with Frank well, the Tank. Yeah, Will Ferrell, and you, it's currently in like a new commercials. Now yeah. I forget what the the product is for, but. I mean, all these 80s songs are still massive, and I think... What happened to U2, by the way? I feel like U2 just kind of faded into... Well, U2 went from being the biggest band in the world for a little while... Rock band, I should say, in the world. I feel like maybe in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s, like U2 had this. And now I, I haven't heard about U2 or any... In, in You know, what happened to Bono going around doing all the virtue signaling with his big, weird, rose-colored sunglasses on? You know what I mean? I'm sure you'll remember this. Uh, I think a lot of it changed when, like, the iPhone was kind of new and getting iTunes, uh, iTunes on your phone was kind of new. And they released uh, an album for free. So it was on everybody's iPhone. Everybody's. And apparently that caused backlash. People saying, why? I don't like you 2 Why is this? And they had problems deleting it off their phone. This was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. That's probably, that, that would be really bad if I had... You know how I feel about robocalls. If I had something on my phone that was music that I didn't want and I couldn't get rid of it, I would hate that band. I would be angry at that band. So I, I think they, they got a lot of backlash uh, from that, but they still have had one of the most successful touring bands in, of all in time, history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think they've sold over 100 million. I know we still say records, even though like no one does records anymore, but they're in that category of, of mega bands but they no, just absolutely. haven't really I don't know I don't know what happened to them they, they kind of faded they faded away a little bit they'll they'll make a comeback in, in, in some way shape or form what's I mean, the what's the best contemporary what's the best rock band like of the last 10 years that's new right forget about oh the Rolling Stones are still touring even though Mick Jagger is 110 years old like what's the best today for you are you a Black Keys guy Black Keys is cool. They're fine. Uh, Hail, Hailstorm. They're fine. Don't don't give us too much here. No, they're okay. I mean, I don't know. I only Who's know the their, their, their for singles. Uh, for me, I'm trying to trying to think of somebody because <laughs> even though we're the same age, I still listen to old bands. Uh, Hailstorm is pretty good. Fronted by uh, uh, Lizzie Hale, who's uh, you know nice, uh, strong voice, female front uh, strong you, voice. Were you ever a uh... Were you ever a Chris Cornell fan? R.I.P. Absolutely, I was too. Actually, so that's something I like Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden a lot. So based up, that's what I will talk about. So there are GNR ties to both bands. So I'll talk about Chris Cornell, and I'll talk about Scott Weiland. And I've had people on who have given their first interviews since Scott passed, and talk about their friendship and his final days and relationship. You know, and it's all about bringing awareness. And it doesn't matter how famous you are, how much money you have. The, the disease of depression and addiction can uh, affect everybody and anybody. And I, I hate to seeing when you go online, because you get it all the time from listeners, criticism. When you, there's a death, and it's like you never know. Like, do your parents ever get upset about people who criticize you publicly? So when there's a death in your family like that, it's just, that's what I try to bring out. I try to talk about the, the role of fandom. So it's all encompassed, again, under the, the GNR umbrella. That's, again, just a 
separate myself a little Can bit. Can I share something with you? And you're not allowed to judge me negatively for it, though. Sure. I don't care what anybody says. I think the Goo Goo Dolls is a great band. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. I'll say it loud and proud. I like the Goo Goo Dolls, damn it. No judgment. They're they're on my Spotify playlist. They're amazing. Yeah, no, People they're People think solid. they're like, because they got very kind of big in MTV, and they're like teeny boppers who kind of like them too, but like they have some great songs, and they're from Buffalo, for heaven's sakes. Buffalo. <laughs> a, a, a frozen part of western New York State. That no, I'm with you. Is, you know, under eight feet of snow for eight months of the year. I'm, it's amazing what they accomplish. If I can interview Johnny Resnick, I think as a yeah. lead singer, I, I would. Do can you it. do that? If you do that, will you come on and tell us about it? By the way, see if he'll come I'll on. In, your... I'll invite you to co-host that episode of oh uh, Appetite gosh, for I just sit there and be like, "Oh my gosh, you're amazing, Johnny Resnick! <laughs> I love your, I love all your music." <laughs> and the other thing I just can't help, and this is, I think, just a cultural thing for me. When I when I was growing up, you know, among my friend group. You know Dave Matthews Band, which is not rock. I, I don't know. What My you girlfriend really call it. is obsessed. She's seen them forty times. I, yeah, I mean Dave Matthews Band was like a cultural phenomenon among my set in you know New York, growing up here in New York City. People my age, my brother's age, a few years older than me, and then I think Dave Matthews became almost became kind of passe the way that Coldplay yeah. has become. Like, everyone's like, oh, Coldplay. When I was in college, people were like, Coldplay is amazing. And now they're like, ugh, Coldplay. You're Dave right. Matthews Band has kind of come back now. And I feel like everybody that liked Dave Matthews when they were teenagers... They'll just they'll just blast it now. They love it. They don't care. Oh, that's what my girlfriend does. Yeah, and she I'm has the same. Taste. I'm the same way with uh, with Creed. I was a big Creed Dude, fan. I I am a stan for Creed. Creed had great songs. <laughs> yep. They're great to work out to. Yep. They're great to rock out to. I know that people have problems with Scott Stapp or whatever. They think that he's you know kind of a weirdo, but um, I, he had some hard times. I think he said. T.I., the rapper T.I. saved him and, and from sobriety, like when he was suicidal. And he's just came out with a new album, Scott Stapp, so he seems to be sober. Very talented and, guy. I mean, yeah. I, you know, these guys, people forget, like, yeah, these bands came up, and but there were so many people. I mean, like the 90s, I feel like, was like the era of the rock band. Like, everybody was starting these. They all wanted to be Nirvana. They all wanted to be, you know, uh, the, you know Stone Temple Pilots or, you know, whom, whichever, you know, these huge acts that came up and that were leveraging MTV and all this stuff. And, you know, you had to beat out a lot of stuff, you know? I mean, there Absolutely. were some there wasn't some that got through the cracks like Green Day that I think never should have. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a Green Day person, so. And uh, I'll, I'll say this, too, which pertains to, you know, your audience. I mean, probably my first love was Green Day. And when American Idiot came out, even though it's, I mean, I don't care too much about politics in that way. I, I, I like to be as down to center as possible. It turned me off. So we'll talk about that would you do you like music and politics mixed in because axel bashes trump on 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 twitter and uh we talk about if should we accept that in in uh in music so we'll broaden the conversation when it when it calls for it not just geeking out about bands all the time dude you get you get the guys from Goo Goo Dolls, and you know, I'll, right. just sit, I'll just I'll sit in, I'll whatever, but you let me know. I'll let I you wanna, know because I want to ask those guys, I really want to know, like, what was it like in the early days? playing on like you know on the frozen tundra of buffalo what was that like going from show to show and trying to build build yourself up you know dave matthews actually by the way made his name in charlotte it was a charlottesville based band which i think is pretty sure. cool so people, he's up for the uh rock and roll hall of fame this year can you believe that i mean look man the guy you know he, he it was like kind of a culture the way that fish became its own culture sure. you know dmb i knew people that traveled i had, I had friends who sold glassware that's a 
nice way of saying certain things. <laughs> <laughs> I, let's not talk about that. Uh, I, I know Fred sold T-shirts and merch yes. and glassware at Dave Matthews shows for years and years. Sure. And so, um, oh, wait, uh, producer Brandon, tell everybody where they can download Appetite for Distortion. Uh, it's on the iHeartRadio app. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's on just SoundCloud, Spreaker, anywhere you get podcasts. But right, I'm happy everybody. that it's on iHeart. Check it out. Appetite for Distortion. There you have it. Team, I know it's rare. We did not get to roll call today because we wanted to give producer Brandon uh, a chance to tell you about his podcast. So you can uh, you can check that out. And you know, we just want to say thank you to producer Brandon for doing a fantastic job for the two weeks while his producer counterpart was sunning himself and enjoying <laughs> margaritas no with his lovely new bride. And congrats to producer Mark. But uh, producer Brandon did a great job, and uh, all of the fan email you received was well. Well deserved. Thank you. Totally unexpected. So all those who wrote in, uh, no slight to Mark, but I appreciated the compliments. And, directly and now you me. can check out his podcast. Monday we'll do a double roll call. Until then, everybody have a great weekend. Shields high.